Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a wet and humid capital is Tim Hyde. Uh, Tim is a prevalent social media marketer and CEO of TWH Media. Tim is 26 years old and has already won awards for his work and is a specialist in social media marketing, acquisition strategy and brand strategy. During his career, Tim has pioneered the top nine most engaged live streams by a brand and strategized and executed marketing plans for crowdfunding initiatives that have gone on to raise six and seven figure funds. His journey started at the age of 18 with the Lad Bible securing its Employee of the Year accolade at the age of 19 for taking its Facebook page from 1.8 million likes to 10 million likes in just 10 months. Uh, Tim, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. What, what an honour it is to, to be on the podcast and yeah, thank you for that extended intro as well. Yeah, Tim, it's fantastic. Um, it's not often, of course, we have sort of a resume like that coming onto the uh, the program. And I was just interested to understand as well that given your sort of career, if you like, started at the age of 18 and was just so successful on that sort of social media side of things. What was the sort of driver behind that? I'm interested to know. Did you just find that getting into it, you had a natural aptitude for the role or was there sort of a deeper inspiration than that, do you think, or a deeper know-how? Oh, I think that's a, a very good question. I suppose um, so I started off wanting to be a journalist, and, and I think on on that side of things, and specifically a, a sports journalist, and the side of the job that I was actually fairly good at was finding you know interesting angles and interesting stories, and sort of having a, a decent understanding of what other people would find interesting, whether that was you know in conversations when interviewing people or you know sort of publicising a story. Um, Whereas, you know, from a writing perspective, I was always fairly average. And then, you know, social media um, was definitely still in its infancy. And I think just sort of seeing firsthand the, the power that, that social media could have, you know, I think it drove sort of 95% of Blood Bible's traffic. Um, we went from sort of in the mid-60s to sort of in the top 10 biggest publishers in the UK. And just getting to harness that and, and see the kind of tactical things and the kind of constant iterations that went on to ensure that, you know, the algorithm worked in your favor, I found really kind of fascinating. And, and it's that kind of like constant application of skills that I really enjoyed. There wasn't just, you know, a book that you read once and therefore become an expert. It's, you know, kind of constantly being pragmatic, testing little things going, oh, that works well. Let's do it that again and, and change this one little thing. And I think that's still sort of true today, that sort of social media strategy um, is, is a lot about iteration and kind of pushing the boundaries. And it wasn't long after the Lad Bible days, of course, that you went on to social chain to become the campaign league there. And you were actually devising, pitching and executing campaigns for the likes of Eurosport there as well, weren't you? And I can imagine working with them, working with the likes of Puma, working with Spotify as well. I can imagine being sort of a sportsman by nature, having played for England um, lacrosse team. Um, that must have been quite exciting. It, it was phenomenal, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely passionate about sport, I suppose. Yeah, the, the Eurosport contract isn't something I, I get to talk about a lot, but I think that was one of the most surreal things for me personally. You know, Social James has and, and, and did at the time, you know, phenomenal big brand campaigns that, you know, reached millions, if not billions of people and drove some amazing business results. But for me personally, because of my um, experience at Life Bible and understanding sort of how to write, social media posts that actually drove traffic to specifically a website, you know, Lot Bible, Sport Bible, we called them teasers at the time. Um, and they paid a, a significant sum to social chain for sort of 20 hours of my time. And what, you know, I think I was 1920 at the time. And so, you know, shit down first time of my, you know, first time on my own in London, kind of going into a room of, you know, 50 plus senior journalists and, and kind of the, the technical support that they had and, and putting on sort of a series of 10 workshops of, you know, how to leverage Facebook best and, you know, helping them kind of track metrics um, on their Facebook page, which I think, you know, had like something like 50 million likes globally, you know, substantial page. And 
um, what I, I kind of loved about that, you know, there wasn't like a, a social chain Bible that I was given to, to go and present. That was, you know, my own knowledge based on my experience. And, and, and you know, social chain was sort of the, the vehicle to sell that. So that, that was a, an amazing experience. And, and, you know, my time at social chain is, you know, by far the most impactful time in my life. The, the lessons learned, the, you know, the kind of personal growth, um, being surrounded with phenomenal people. And um, actually throughout the, the Euros with, quite a lot of us went to a couple of different like Euros parties and mm-hmm. being able to sort of reconnect with people. Um, you know, we all kind of say to each other, that first 20, 25 people, if you look back now, you know, what, six, seven years on, a lot of those people are doing some extremely cool, exciting, you know, special things. Um, and that group, you know, was, I think, really, really special. And um, I suppose you'll know yourself, you know, that doesn't always happen when you work with a business that, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes a lot of people, do, you know, a small amount of people doing the heavy lifting. But as a group, I think we, you know, we just had a really special bunch, and it, that came together with, you know, some good timing and an accelerated sense of, of where social media was going, and, and that was really the catalyst for social change. Yeah, and I can imagine that sort of was really influential when it came to launching your own social media marketing agency as well. TWH Media, of course, started in September 7th, 2017. And uh, that now specializes as a business in helping companies scale up, doesn't it, um, online through your own sort of unique methodology. And even with the COVID-19 pandemic, you're enjoying something like year on year growth of about 400%. Is that right? Yes, yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, you, you want to be sensitive given, you know, the year or practically mm, two years now absolutely. that everyone's had. But, um, you know, I ended up having a record year and um, I, I was saying this to a taxi driver yesterday. Uh, so I got hit really hard at the start of COVID, you know, substantial contracts sort of paused. I mean, you, you can't really do anything because, you know, you either go to court and lose the client long term um, or you kind of go, yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone's figuring everything out you can pause, but I lost about 40% of my business overnight um, in that, that first March when we, when we initially went into lockdown and yeah, I got really scared, you know, if it, if it carried on going, I, I'd have been in trouble, but thankfully, you know, online spend just increased, 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 more time was spent on social media, which meant, you know, there was more advertising space and more spend went into the channels where, where I specialize and from an e-commerce perspective, you know, I think COVID just basically sort of sped that up if you like and so I've been extremely fortunate and you know with my kind of background and the businesses I've worked with and you know the case studies and kind of examples of work um, I've been sort of able to capitalize on that and you know with with Zoom calls I, I was already quite sort of heavily based in the US as well so you know very used to unfortunately you know late night Zoom calls and, and communicating people digitally um, whereas obviously COVID did that for everyone so I was just very well placed to sort of you know kind of scale up my own operation if you like um and, and kind of ensure that you know we, we drove great performance and because more people were buying stuff online i mean i think 90 percent of my clients had record periods and a lot of them still haven't actually been able to get stock back in just because we sold at such high volumes and um yeah not jealous of any sort of e-commerce brand owners mm. because the logistics side of the business doesn't tend to get as much attention but it's by far the most difficult whereas you know my kind of marketing engagement content side tends to get a lot of attention but you know when you know what you're doing and, and when it works it can be very straightforward but it, you know when it when it doesn't work is is when you have to work pretty hard yeah what we've seen from the pandemic is that it's really hastened kind of a digital revolution hasn't it it's brought forward so much in terms of the flexible working side of things and i think now that those businesses that have been ahead of the curve and working online those are the businesses that are succeeding and it seems like technology is now going to play much more of a role in our day-to-day lives doesn't it i think so yeah and and, and, you know i think there's pros and cons to that you know so myself it allows me to be much more efficient it allows me to actually take on more work um, but I do think there is going to be this balance of, you know, people working from home um, and enjoying it because it, it cuts out that commute, but then also people missing out on that, you know, physical human connection, which certainly from like a, you know, mental health standpoint and, and actually like a growth perspective, um, I think is something that, you know, businesses are going to have to balance. And um, I do think in the next sort of 18 months, we are going to see a transition where, the businesses that are actually doing really well will have, you know, a physical presence in the office because of the, you know, phenomenal environment and culture 
that they've, they've able to sort of create uh, is actually a massive motivator for their members of staff. But to be honest, you know, I think for me, uh, it's been, you know, very beneficial and I've, you know, have my home office and, you know, have good Wi-Fi speed and can have, you know, a quiet meeting room when I need to, you know, do podcasts and calls and all those things are a big box ticks for me. But, you know, that, that isn't the case for all jobs that unfortunately have to be taken online. So I think we, we do need to be wary of that. Exactly. And one thing that we've been talking about here at the Leaders' Council a lot lately with regards to the mental health and well-being side of things is sort of CEO burnout as well, because it's so easy to get sort of sucked into survival mode during a crisis, looking after the business, looking after the well-being of all of your employees. And then sometimes that can take its toll on you as a business leader, if you'd like. So for you personally, Tim, is it easy to sort of take that kind of step back and recharge the batteries as and when you need to? It's definitely not easy, but it's definitely essential. Um, yeah, I think um, there's probably a couple of different answers to this. You know, I think with with COVID, what I certainly found is because you didn't have that sort of like external stimulation or exciting things going on outside of work, all, all I kind of did was work. And I definitely got to the point where I now have to be really sort of precious about, say, weekends. I'm not saying I don't do any work on a weekend, but... I definitely need to find that time to switch off, you know, not be looking at my laptop or ads manager constantly and at least having a bit of a disconnect because otherwise, yeah, you know, whether you classify it as burnout or, you know, it builds up kind of anxiety and, um, yeah, you know, I think it is really important and, and also the most difficult thing to find that balance, but it is absolutely essential. Whereas, you know, in, in non-COVID times, whether that was a trip abroad, a trip to London, a, you know, a dinner out with friends, you were able to disconnect there and I actually didn't feel like it, you know, working on a weekend and, and putting that, that time in had a negative impact on me mentally. Whereas with COVID, I think, you know, after a, you know, a couple of months where we were all working really hard and, and, and super focused to sort of regain, you know, the business and, and ensure we're not losing any clients. Um, now, yeah, I have to be, you know, or, or try to be very, uh, protective of, of, of my time and, and, and even later into the evening, you know, I've always worked pretty late into the evening. Uh, one, because I'm not a particularly morning person, um, but also because I've, yeah, like a, a lot of US clients and, and that's when they're up and you need to communicate with them. With them. But yeah, you know, now it's getting late into the evening and I, and I am starting to just switch off because again, your mind needs that time to sort of reset and, and adjust and even, you know, that has a negative impact on your sleep. If you're, you know, working up until the point that you go to bed, then, you, you know, quality of sleep goes down in it. And that has another sort of knock-on effect on, on your productivity for the rest of the week. So, yeah, no, that was a, a long-winded answer. But no, I think it's, it's absolutely essential, but also not, not easy to do. And just sort of reflecting on the sort of last 15 or 16 months as a whole that we've been living under social restrictions because of the pandemic in adapting to this sort of new reality that we've all had to face, would you say that you've like learned something from this experience? I think, I think we've all learned, learned lots. I think, you know, we've, we've learned stuff about ourselves. I um, spoke to my old boss, Steve, um, in the middle of lockdown when I was feeling a little bit burnt out just before I did start, you know, take some more time for myself and, um, you know, I, I don't thankfully suffer from, you know, mental health problems at, at the moment. But what we, after a conversation with Steve, I, I did go to see um, a therapist. And, you know, one of the things I think with, with mental health, I think we're all aware of mental health, but I think this, this next layer would be amazing to kind of remove the stigma of going to a therapist, business coach, you know, whatever it is, and speaking to someone. And, and what I sort of really found from that, um, you know, what, what are my kind of internal motivators? Um, because, you know, I, I was doing extremely well financially, but it got to the point where I was feeling exhausted and I was, you know, in my head feeling a bit burnt out. But what the, the two words that have helped me is, you know, freedom and balance. And so, you know, the freedom for me to work on exciting projects, freedom to, to you know, to regularly go to the gym, freedom to travel and experience new things, but also being able to balance that with, you know, a healthy lifestyle, balancing that with, you know, other external things other than just work and, you know, speaking to a therapist and, and going through some of my struggles really, really helped me. Um, other things that, you know, I learned about myself was was just getting better. And, and I think that's, um, you know, about having a business for a while. You know, I think I'm nearly in my fifth year now. Um, and, and so my processes have always adapted. And it sounds super boring, like, yeah, businesses, or certainly agencies, 
terms of the about their processes, but you know, as you get better at reporting and understand a, a communication strategy with clients that works better and therefore deliver great results, which you know I think I always have, that's meant that you know my retention rates have, have gone up to an you know, ninety plus percent. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with clients for three, four years now, and I've got really solid um, relationships. So even when performance does dip, whereas in my early days I'd be like, oh god, you know, the performance is there from see it's not going well. You know, am I going to lose a client here? Whereas now, I think you build up that you know social you know equity, if you like, mm. where people sort of trust in your ability, but also at the same time, you know, you are doing all the right things to communicate. Right, we've tried this, we've tried that. This is going well. We're reporting weekly. They know all the hard work that's going on. Whereas I think in my early days, it was like a, a monthly report that almost felt like a you know going for battle, and you sort of had to justify your worth. Whereas say like a weekly check in. We tried this, this didn't work, this worked really well, we're scaling up this, you know, super, uh, you know, my way of communicating tends to be quite, you know, hard on sleeve. Um, and just being really honest with people, you know, this hasn't worked, we're struggling at the moment, or actually, do you know what, we're doing phenomenally well, let's push really hard. And that, that for me has been, been probably the biggest change in the last 18 months and, mm. and it allowed me to, you know, take on more business and, and retain clients at an even better rate. Yeah, that transparency is so, so important, isn't it? And um, I think as well, just with the fact that in times of economic hardship like this, we see so many successful businesses being born out of the hardship. There are probably several budding entrepreneurs, young aspiring business leaders that may be tuning into this podcast. And just for them, Tim, as somebody who has been successful like yourself in working at other businesses and then starting your own, what advice would you actually give to those sort of younger aspiring business people to sort of start them on the road to success? Oh, very good question. You know, I think, um, there needs to be a level of, of kind of confidence in, in yourself and your in your ability to sort of execute whatever it is you're selling or or whatever kind of brand service that, that you're building and and making sure you put the, the time in to put to be really confident and, and you know, good at, at that skill. I think that's been tends to be the biggest differentiator. You know, you don't want to just be you know a middleman that's selling someone else's services. For me, it's always been great to to have that kind of, you know, technical now to be able to execute myself because therefore that's what I'm selling and, and that's my biggest differentiator. But um, I think other than that, it's, you know, being good to people, being polite, being honest, you know, very basic kind of human skills that un- unfortunately in the workplace sometimes get get left behind. And I think when you are um, polite to people, it, it keeps doors, you know, ajar, even if you don't get that opportunity there and then. Whereas if you rude to people and, you know, you don't kind of, you know, give a good account of yourself or, you know, you turn up late or, you know, some of the work was quite lazy. You you don't always see the doors that that actually shuts, you know, whether it's referral, a family friend, you know, so much business is generated by you doing good work and having pride in, in you know, your ability and, and what you're doing, um, whether that's like, you know, attention to detail or, or constantly kind of investing in yourself to be better. Um, they're the things that I think have, have significantly helped me. Um, mm. Yeah, I hope that was yeah absolutely really important aspects really sound advice indeed and just before we uh, sort of wrap up Tim uh, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time um, I would like to talk about the uh, the future as well because it's clear in the UK that we're now looking toward that July the 19th Freedom Day as it's been dubbed where social restrictions are going to be going and things are going to be returning to some kind of normal of course in terms of your business priorities at the moment you're working on growing your presence in the uh, Middle East region of course Um, but what's sort of next for you over this next year as we hopefully move into that period of economic recovery and where do you see TWH Media being by this time in 2022 all being well with COVID? What a great question. I mean I suppose I, I would feel extremely lucky if I'm able to not only continue but basically just main, maintain the trajectory that I'm on. You know I've got some phenomenal clients and really big contracts that um, I'm, I'm really enjoying working on. I've got a few different partner agencies that I work with that allow me to work on um, really substantial projects because they take some of that workload off me and I, and I get to focus on on what I'm I'm good at. Um, you know, I'm excited to see if one of my side businesses, True Fun, is is raising another round um, in Canada. So I'm excited to see how that goes. I've just become a shareholder of a, a lottery in the Caribbean in Jersey, and and you know this year that's been a major project that I've been working on, and we've been able to sort of pretty much double revenue for the first six months of this year. And so that's been really exciting to sort of put in a very pragmatic plan 
reporting, understand what spend is, is returning. Um, but when it comes to Freedom Day, you know, I, I don't think online spend going anywhere. I don't think, you know, media spend in, in the kind of social media sense isn't going anywhere. I think, you know, people people's attention uh, will be divided more. And, you know, I think habits will change because, you know, I, I like to think anyway, people will be spending more time in pubs and restaurants and, and going into clubs and, and, you know, kind of meeting up again, which means there probably will be less kind of um, online time spent. But I don't think that really will, will shift how, how I how I work. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, it's just a case of, of making sure that I take take the right opportunities I put myself first, you know, I've got a phenomenal foundation and, and current sort of structures to the business. And yeah, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing this well in 12 months, 24 months time, I'll, I'll feel extremely lucky. But I think it's a case of, yeah, that freedom and balance, you know, not just doing things because it, it generates income I'm at a good level now and, and making sure that the projects align with, with my values um, and, and have a good relationship with the client because I know you reference at the start some of the brands that I have worked with and some of those names and, and people at those brands are, are brilliant people and lovely to work with. But I have to say, you know, some of the my favorite clients, if you like, or you shouldn't have favorites, are people I've worked with for years. And, and at the end of the day, they're just lovely, lovely people. Um, and that, that for me, if I can work with great people, that for me is, is what makes me extremely happy. That's absolutely fantastic. And certainly wish you all the luck in the world in sort of making those visions become a reality, Tim. Certainly sounds if you've got plenty to get your teeth stuck into over the next year or so and beyond, of course. And I think as we start to sort of see the economic recovery take some form of shape and we know sort of where we're going in terms of an industry, I think it would be brilliant to actually catch up in future and have you back on the show with us because I really enjoyed having you on. It's been a real eye opener for me into that sort of social media side of things. And we'd be good to catch up and just see how things are going a bit further down the line. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you so much for having me. And anytime you'd like me on, I'll yeah, be more than willing. Thanks ever so much, Tim. And uh, lastly, just before we wrap up, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but I'm confident that better days are certainly ahead of us. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Tim Hyde, CEO of TWH Media, onto the programme today. Um, Here at the Leaders' Council, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership onto the programme. And therefore, next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff remains the only player in history to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final, of course, which he famously did in 1966 as England beat Germany 4-2 after extra time should say that was West Germany it was before the reunification Um, I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and that will be coming up on the show next and now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wanted to bury it. And I'd be absolutely... I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, 
that England England have achieved or we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks. Uh, uh, making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've, you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you 
what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all sorts of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. 
uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's just able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, 
wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a 
and of course over the years hopefully that that has uh, come out that's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A he saw when I was at West Ham and B obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City so I was I was initially first fairly surprised I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, that we it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final, so it was a, a marvelous time for for that particular club. And very close, we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on the goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played. Uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I made very little contributions to that success the club had so um, yes it the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always jokingly say you, 
you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.